as we continue our study this morning of the book of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 2? Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be looking this morning at Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Most of our time will be spent on verse 7. And uh, when you are there, if you are physically able, I'd ask that you stand with me as we read these four verses together. Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. And let me read for us what we find here. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens... When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living Creature, you may be seated. This morning, we come to a new section in the book of Genesis. We've spent the last many weeks on chapter 1, verses 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, that first section of the book. But now we know that we've come to a new section because we read the words, these words are the generations in verse 4. And that phrase will appear again and again and again in the book of Genesis, and each time it separates one section from another. Each time it begins a new section. Typically, it will include the name of a man and tell what came from this man, or tell of events in his life or events in the life of his children. But in this first occasion that we read it, it says these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And it proceeds beginning in verse 5 through the rest of the Bible to tell us the events that take place in heaven and mainly on earth. In Genesis 1 verses, I'm sorry, in Genesis 1 through chapter 2 verse 3, the universe is created. Now beginning in verse 4, the story of all that takes place in that universe begins to be unfolded. By the way, it is from verse 4 that Genesis gets its name. In the Greek translation of verse 4, called the Septuagint, that was used during the days of Jesus, the word generations was translated using the Greek word genesis meaning origins. And so, because that word appeared in that phrase ten times in the book, this book became known as the book of Genesis. Back in the days of the Old Testament, this book was not called by that name. It was called by the name Bereshit. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's a Hebrew word that means in the beginning. It's the first word of the book. And so that was its Old Testament name, but in our day we know it as the book of Genesis. Now in verse 5, we find ourselves brought back 
to the sixth day, the day that God created man. And we are given a picture of fields, uncultivated fields. There are no crops growing. There are no wild plants to provide sustenance for livestock. And we're told that the reason these fields are barren is because the rain needed to cause the plants to grow had not yet been given. There was water coming up from the ground, but it was not enough to cause these fields to break out into life. But not only was there no water, there was no man. Man could use irrigation to bring more water to these fields. Man could work the ground to give the crops opportunity to come forth and grow. But what we see in verses 5 and 6 is a picture of farmland that needs man in order to flourish. Without man, the fields are barren. With man, those fields would be full of life. And it's just a reminder to us that man was created to bring order and beauty and blessing to the earth. In verse 7, we learn how God created man. We've already learned that God created man in His image after His likeness, male and female. We've already seen that He told man to fill the earth and to rule over it with wisdom and creativity, glorifying the God whose likeness we bear. Yet up to this point, we have not been told how God created man. In verse 7, we see that we were made from something low and earthly, dust. And that we were made from something high and heavenly, the very breath of God. Heaven and earth come together in the creation of man. Notice the first words of verse 7. Then the Lord God. So far in Genesis, we've only seen God called by one name. God. Elohim. The Sovereign One. The Mighty One. But beginning here in verse 4, I'm sorry, yes, beginning in verse 4, and then also in verse 5, and then in verse 7, and then in verse 8, and then in verse 9, and so forth, we see God called by a new name. In your Bible, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's the name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah, I am who I am. And this is the first time that it is made abundantly clear that the God who created the universe in chapter 1, that the God who creates human beings is the God of Israel, the God of the Jews, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who revealed Himself to Moses and saved His people out of Egypt and gave them the law at Sinai. He is the God who made heaven and earth and all that fill them. Notice the word formed. Then the Lord God formed. The picture is that of a potter molding his clay into the form he desires. God takes the dust of the ground and fashions the first human body. And here we see the marvelous skill of our God. He is no shoddy craftsman. 
for we are fearfully and wonderfully made. How amazing that God could create a human body out of dust. The human body with all of its cells, its organs, its systems, all of its many functions. And this ought to humble us. It ought to remind us that we are connected to this earth that we live on. I heard Pastor Andy Davis speak once about seeing a vial of dirt in a museum. And he said that it got up his curiosity and he went and tried to figure out what this vial of dirt contained and it turned out it was the components of a human body with the water taken out. It turns out that if you remove the water from our bodies, we go back to being dust. In fact, there's a play on words here in verse 7 that brings this point out. We have God creating man Adam, out of the dust of the ground. And the Hebrew word for ground is Adama or Hadama, A-D-A-M-A. In other words, the name of man, Adam, and the name of the ground are very, very similar. One seems to be taken from the other. As others have pointed out, earth is our cradle, Earth is where we live, and because of the fall, earth is also our grave. Our breaths from the first to the last are spent connected to this earth. Now also in this word formed, we should note the sovereignty of our God. He is the potter, we are His creation, and this means He has the right to do with us as He pleases. But now, O Lord... You are our Father, we are the clay, and You are our potter. We are all the work of Your hand. Isaiah 64, verse 8. This is a truth that Israel needed to be regularly reminded of, and perhaps you need to be reminded of it this morning as well. In Jeremiah 18, God instructs Jeremiah to go to a potter's house. And there Jeremiah comes upon the potter, working at his will. Jeremiah says, And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. And then Jeremiah spoke the word of God to Israel and said, O house of Israel, can I, God speaking, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. And this morning, God wants to remind us at Mount Hermon, Justin Nail, you are the clay, I am the potter, can I not do with you as I please? It's another reason we ought to be humble, not arrogant about our lives. We do not own ourselves. We belong to the one who made us. The root of every sin is the desire to be your own master, your own ruler, your own God, rather than giving allegiance to our maker, the one who truly owns us. We think that freedom will come in throwing off the yoke of obedience to God and living however we want to live. What we don't understand is that the one who made us, our master, loves us more than we love ourselves. He's wiser than us. 
And He's chosen to bless us forever as His children. He offers a world of joy to us if we will be faithful to our potter, to our maker, the one who made us. But like Pinocchio, we run away from our maker who loves us. We have spurned him. We have ignored his counsel and his instructions. We think, as Pinocchio did, that true happiness and freedom lies in being apart from our maker. Yet when we run away from God, we find that we are not free at all. It is apart from God that we cease to be children and become slaves. Slaves to sin, slaves to wickedness, slaves to self. And the only one who can save us from our wretched slavery is the one who made us, who loves us, and who desires for us to return. And like the story of the prodigal son, if we will return to the one who made us, we will find our God running to us, receiving us in His arms, celebrating our homecoming. But if we do not, then we are like the spoiled vessel of the potter. And we need to understand that he has the right to take that warped, disfigured, no good piece of pottery and cast it into the fire. Fellow vessels of clay, what is your relationship with your maker? What is your standing before God? Now, I mentioned earlier that not only are our bodies made of the dust of the ground, but because of sin, our bodies will one day return to the ground, won't they? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Yet the Bible does speak of a day when we will have bodies that will never die. The Lord Jesus came and took on an earthly body, a body headed to become dust. But He died and He rose again with a heavenly body, a spiritual body, guaranteeing that we who belong to Him will one day trade in this earthly body headed for dust for a new, remade, heavenly body in which we will live with Christ forever. Listen to this interesting verses from 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to what Paul says. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, referring to Jesus. As was the man of dust, so also those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Listen to this. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, I don't fully understand everything in those verses But I know that they're good. (laughs) I know that they are bringing good news. Those verses tell us that these lowly bodies, which now bear the consequences of sin, will be made new and different and heavenly on the day that Jesus returns. Our resurrection day. Our Easter. Is that good news, church? But this verse is not only about our bodies, our outer man. You and I know that we are more than just bodies. The Bible tells us, and we know from experience, that there is something else to us 
that we have an inner person which feels and thinks and desires and wills. We know that we are more than just flesh and blood, more than just a collection of cells. Sometimes the Bible refers to the inner man as his soul, or as a spirit, or as his heart. Yet all of these words, your soul, your spirit, your heart, they all seem to be used in the Bible to refer to that inward person that feels and thinks and longs and makes decisions. We read in verse 7 that God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life and he became a living creature. This is a warm and intimate picture. Some have called this the kiss of life. Here God is not only creating man, but God is actually giving man something from Himself. The word breath is the same as the word for spirit, so that God is giving to man a a spirit of life. The ESV says that once God breathed on the man, he became a living creature. Other translations say he became a living soul. The outer man was created from dust, but the inner man was created by the very breath of God. Now we should note here that the Bible does not teach that our souls have always existed. There are other religions other philosophies that claim that our souls are eternal as God is eternal, so that there has never been a time when our souls did not exist. Yet the Bible clearly shows here that the creation of the inner man came at the same time as the creation of the outer man. And similarly, when a new baby is conceived, and by God's power, a new person is created, it is both body and soul that are created. The miracle of Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, is repeated again and again every time a new child comes into the world. We should also note here that the Bible knows nothing of reincarnation. You know reincarnation, it's that idea that when our bodies die, our inner self, our soul, is reborn in a different state. This belief is popular in many different religions. Buddhism, Hinduism, some of the more mystical branches of Islam. As one Turkish poet wrote, I died as a mineral and became a plant. I died as plant and rose to animal. I died as animal and I was man. Why should I fear? When was I less by dying? There were many around our world, who believe that our souls will be reborn again and again and again with a different outer body, whether it be plant, mineral, animal, or human, and that this will continue until our inner selves lose the desire for the things of this world and enter into a state of total peace. Friends, that is totally contradictory to the teaching of the Bible. Your body and your soul were created together. You will never be reborn as a rock or as a plant or an animal. You will never be reborn as another human being with another personality. 
And the way to peace is not by being reborn again and again and again in different forms, but by being born again once by the Spirit of God. Christ gives us peace. Peace in our souls. Peace with God by forgiving our sins. By opening our eyes to how good and glorious our God is. And by transforming our souls, not into a rabbit or a rock or an oak tree, but by transforming our souls into spiritual souls that no longer rebel, but worship the one who made us. As Christians, we reject reincarnation because we have a truth that is much better and true. Now, one of the questions that people often ask concerning the inner man or the soul is whether human beings alone have a soul or whether or not animals also have a soul. Many dog owners and cat owners have wondered about their pets. Does my pet have an inner soul? And if we come at that from the Bible, the answer to that question seems to be both a yes and a no. So let me explain. The word that is often translated as soul, in the ESV verse 7, it's translated as living creature, in Hebrew is the word nefesh. And it refers primarily to that living principle within a body that gives it life and gives it desires and cravings. Now, look with me at Genesis 1 and verse 20. In the ESV, in Genesis 1, verse 20, it says, Let the water swarm with swarms of, do you see it? Living creatures. Now, that is the same Hebrew word that is at other place translated souls. Again, in verse 21, So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature. Again, that's the word elsewhere translated living soul. And again, in verse 24, Let the earth bring forth living Creatures, elsewhere translated, living souls. And so if we're going to be technical, yes, the same word that is used of human beings in chapter 2, verse 7, is used of animals. Animals do have something approximating a soul, which causes their bodies to move, which causes them to live, and drives them to, to move and to act. Most scientists today would call this instinct, that there's an instinct in animals that cause them to, to crave food and to desire sleep and to pursue a mate. And certainly those things that are true of animals have a resemblance in human beings as well. However, with that said, the Bible is clear that there's a big difference between a man's soul and that living principle that is within animals. The human soul has a complexity and capacity that animals do not our souls are eternal. The Bible never says that the souls of animals, to use that phrase, are eternal. Our souls are capable of having fellowship with God. And our souls are capable of breaking fellowship with God. That kind of language is never used concerning animals. Our souls are capable of reason and abstract thinking. We are capable of religion and morality and art. These are things which animals know nothing about. And so in the big picture, we would have to say that animals do not have souls as you and I do. Now let me briefly make three points about the inner you, about our souls. First, 
Your soul is the thinking, feeling, desiring, willing part of who you are. God commands us to love Him with all our souls and warns us against abhorring His commandments in our souls. Leviticus 26, 15. In Psalm 6, 3, David says, My soul is greatly troubled. In Psalm 19, 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Psalm 23, 3, God restores the soul. In Psalm 33, 20, the soul waits on the Lord. In Scripture, we find the human soul panting, thirsting, boasting, shouting for joy, being lifted up, cast down, made cheerful, melted down with sorrow, calmed, distressed, satisfied, delivered. All of these words and many, many more describe the human soul in the Bible. My question for you is this. What is the state of your soul? Would you have to say this morning, my soul is troubled? Or can you say this morning, my soul is at peace? What is burdening your soul this morning? Are there worries that are hanging over you? Is your soul discontented, unsatisfied, or lonely? Are you weighed down with shame or with guilt or with longings that are not being met, would we say that yours is a restless spirit? Then hear the words of Jesus. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Submit your soul to Christ. Stop living life your own way and entrust yourself to Him. Learn from Him. Let His commandments and promises and truths shape the way you think, the way you speak, the way you live. That's what it means to have His yoke upon you. Trust Him. Joyfully bow to Him as your master. Watch as He leads you to green pastures and still waters. He will restore your soul. And you will be able to say, even though I walk through the valley of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. For your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Taking on your life, the yoke of Jesus will bring rest to your souls. Point number two, your soul is intimately connected to your body. We must not think of ourselves as souls trapped in bodies. There's an ancient heresy that pops up again and again and again that says who I really am is my soul and I'm trapped in this body and the goal of religion is to get out of the body. Yet the Bible teaches that we are both body and soul. That both were created by God, both bear His image, and in the beginning both were declared good. Both body and soul are fallen. Both are afflicted by sin. We are both. The Bible does not so much teach that you have a body and that you have a soul as it teaches that you are body and soul. Together they make up who you are. Now it is true, when you die, your soul is going to depart from your body. But that is an unnatural consequence of sin, not the way it was in the beginning and not the way it will ultimately be in the end. For when Jesus returns to set all things right, your soul and body will be reunited and you will be both physical and spiritual forever. 
You are both body and soul. Now, it is a good thing to take care of your body. Eating healthily, exercising, not putting yourself in needless danger. These are good habits to have. And yet I think we would agree that there are many who work really hard at caring for their bodies while neglecting the care of their souls. Paul told Timothy, Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. 1 Timothy 4. So physical training, caring for your body, does have some value, but training and caring for your soul has so much more. Your body that you now have is going to die. And be transformed. But your soul will never die if you're a Christian. And what you do to care for your soul today will have consequences for eternity. Have you trained your soul to remain quiet and content when stressful times come your way? Have you taught your soul to rest in Christ when you're having an awful Monday? Have you trained your soul to pray and commune with God? Have you trained your soul to love those around you, setting aside your own desires, rejoicing with those who rejoice, and mourning with those who mourn? Does your soul know what it means to be overcome with happiness in God? Friends, there are lots of people with fit bodies and very unfit souls. Have you trained your soul Trust in Christ. Your Bible, your fellow believers in this room, your pastor, and many other things have been given to you by God for the training of your soul, for the care of your soul. Don't neglect something that is so vitally important. Your witness is at stake. Your perseverance in faith is at stake. Your ability to truly love and serve others is at stake. Caring for your soul must be even more of a priority than caring for your body. Finally, your soul is the most valuable possession you have outside of Christ. Friends, it was not for your money that Jesus died. And it was not for your achievements that Jesus died. It was not for your house or your television or anything else you own. Christ died for your soul. God isn't working to bring your money or your achievements or your house into heaven. He is working. He gave His only begotten Son so that you, body and soul, would be saved. You remember what Jesus asked in Matthew 16, 26. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul. For what shall a man give in return for his soul? It is your soul that makes it possible for you to fellowship with God. It is your soul that gives you the capacity to love. What is the state of your soul? Let me close with this question for you. What are the desires of your soul. You can tell a lot about the state of your soul by asking, what are the chief desires of my soul? 
If the desires that drive your life each day are simply cravings for food or for sex or for physical comfort, then though you have a human soul, you are living no differently than an animal. It is the ability to put these desires in their good and proper place beside or behind a desire for God, a desire for love, a desire for beauty and order, for purity and holiness. These are what make us human and not animals. Prayer, worship, fellowship, the ability to reason and think upon God and His ways. These are the privileges that you have as a man or as a woman. Yet sin would have you give up those privileges. Sin would have you debase yourself and become like an animal. Sin would have you to be ruled by your appetite for earthly things. The New Testament talks a lot about this. Paul describes unbelievers this way. Philippians 3, Many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And their glory is their shame with their minds set on earthly things. It's funny, both Paul and Peter and Jude, all when they talk about false teachers, bring it back to this idea that they leave, I'm sorry, that they live following their own earthly appetites like animals. Paul said in Romans 16, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. Peter speaks about people who indulge in the lust of defiling passions, despise authority. He said, these, like irrational animals... Creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheme about matters of which they are ignorant. They will be destroyed in their destruction. Many passages in the New Testament speak of those who are caught up in lives pursuing sensual pleasures. They want their bellies full, they want their bottoms comfortable like a baby, and they live for nothing more. This is not who we were created to be. We were called to be higher creatures, nobler, meant to live for the glory of God. God is not caught up in the sensual pursuit of pleasure, but in the joy of who He is, His character and His works, His beauty and His wisdom. We were created with souls that are different than any other thing that God created because we were created to see and savor our God. We were created to be worshipers, finding delight in Him as we break out in praise towards Him. If we live for anything else, we're living for something lesser. We're wasting our lives. C.S. Lewis had it exactly right. He said, quote, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy has been offered to us. We are far too easily pleased like an ignorant child who goes on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer to holiday at the sea. The child playing in the little mud puddle because he can't imagine the joy of seeing the ocean. 
And so also we try and fill our souls with pleasures from earthly things that cannot satisfy when Almighty God calls us to find our fulfillment and satisfaction in Him. And so, what are the desires of your heart that will tell you the state of your soul? Does your soul only long for low earthly things? Or is there in you a desire to know God more, to love God more, to experience more of His presence and His power? Are you passionately in love and longing to have more of God? Or does your soul find satisfaction in lower creaturely pleasures? Let's pray that the song of the psalmist would be ours. As the deer... Pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. What is your soul thirsting for this morning? Let's pray.